0: This week on the show we show you a couple of lessons learned from a 27-year-old Unix book, finally d and we talk a bit about this, setting up a signal proxy using FreeBSD, how to annotate your PDF files in OpenBSD, things you should do now, a applicator story, and just a more Unix-y make system and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode 393, finally ZFS d recorded for the 3rd of March 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash Now for the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Heuschling. And I'm Dan Langel. Surprise! Yeah, he's back. And we thought, why not make two episodes? Because, well... Alan should have a little bit of a break, but not too long. So Alan uh, was happy to let Dan on the microphone again. And uh, that is what we did. So this one is done by Dan and myself. And we have, of course, headlines for you. And that is an interesting one because there are lessons learned from a 27-year-old the Unix book. So one of
1: the reviewers one of the Amazon reviewers of Sun Performance and Tuning, Java and the Internet, gave this book three out of five stars. And while it's, they said, while still a nice introduction, the book by Adrian Cockcroft has become dated, claimed Roland back in 2003, which, believe it or not, was 18 years ago. So the Porsche book as it's, as it's referred to, is quick to explain the analogy between Unix and the Porsche 911, which is featured on the co- cover. Both were created in the 60s in a form similar to the current one. I don't understand what they mean by that. But both represent the greatest and latest of products around in 1994 and indeed 2021, despite their quirks. What What the reviewer talks about is when it comes, this is the person, this is the, the guy in the blog post, not the uh, Amazon reviewer. When it comes to the Porsche book, I find it fascinating to read about the most common usage scenarios of Sun servers in the 90s. And I can't help but feel sorry for the admin who didn't know that for Sun OS 4, only file names up to 14 characters long are cached in the directory name lookup cache, DL, DNLC. Well, that's interesting. I, I kept reading through this to find out the little oddities that, that were in there. Um, one of them, where was it? Uh, there's a chapter that talks about the built-in LE network interface, and it points out that it shared its DMA connection with the SCSI interface. And crucially, the network interface had higher priority, but it still meant that if you had heavy network activity, It was likely to to reduce disk throughput, which at that time I can understand why they did this. It was early days in hardware, but nowadays you you'd be heavily criticized if that happened. But this is one of the things that a sysadmin back then had to know. I find that amazing. The author suggests taking multiple SAR utilization measurements at various load levels and combine them with OC to get an overview of how the system behaves. So. They talk about vmstat and sar in detail, and they talk about uh, they focus in on something called a runnable queue, blocked queue, swap usage, and so forth. And th- they mention that the Linux version of vmstat and star, sar from proc ps and systat are slightly different, than, different from the Solaris ones, but the main ideas still apply. The, the the main incentive for reading this book is, is that it can still provide valuable lessons today as some of the true historical as well as some true historical gems for those who are into such things. And you don't have to buy the book which the author did with the which the blog post author did, but you can get a copy of it on the internet ar- Archive if you're interested. Um, it, it's always, insightful to read what people had to deal with and how they had to solve problems back then um, and the things that we take for granted today uh, and easily you can see how far we've come in just 10 to 15 years let alone way back when this was written which was 20 2003 was a, a blog post but i forget the day of the book it's 27 years ago. I'm not going to do the math.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's not good.
1: 94, 94, 84,
0: 94. around that. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting that when they talk about in the configuration factors and levels section, how complex uh, and quickly complex uh, the measurements and tuning becomes. So when you perform a set of tests, there are multiple settings and knobs one can work with, each having various options to choose from which file system we are using. What's the version of the application we're testing? Kernel buffer size. And so when measuring each combination of those six different factors with four levels, each would take 4 to the power of 6, you know, 4096 measurements, which clearly is madness, (laughs) they write. And by reducing the levels they considered to 2, still evaluating all six different factors in all possible combinations, we get down to 2 to the power of 6 with 64 measurements instead. Of course most of these work in combination and provide you the the benefits of the better performance this way but just the number of things you have to measure and the complexity can explode pretty quickly
1: this ties in well to the last episode where we talked briefly about benchmarking all the different yes. changes that you can make in a benchmarking uh, situation So this is just a very, this is a very simple in comparison.
0: Yeah. Brendan Gregg's book also came out recently or recently-ish. The new, what's it called? Um, Second edition of performance benchmarking. I don't know the exact title at the moment, Uh, but that has things like those in there. Like how do you perform proper measurements and that you get the the proper results in your, that you uh, want to know about the, answering your own performance questions. So yeah. why is this slow? Has this ever been fast? And things like that.
1: I have enough tro- trouble evaluating disk speed, let alone benchmarking properly. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's a, a fascinating topic, but also very difficult, because you can make a lot of errors that you know r- ruin the results, or you can draw the wrong conclusions. But that's why it's good to have books like this to uh, show us uh, how to do it, or a basic approach. Even if it's an old book, they can still be valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, what Alan is probably be very happy about, and other people as well. D-Rate, finally, that's over at Clara Systems. They wrote an article about that. So this is a sneak peek into the latest and long-awaited feature of OpenZFS. And so D-Rate, are you familiar with that? It's going around for a while.
1: I've heard of it before. I've heard Alan talk about it before and i remember as i was reading this blog, blog this blog post yes i've heard of that before and i've heard of that and that sounds familiar and i vaguely remember thinking okay well yeah but why is it better how does it improve things and the, the this post goes into a little bit of detail on that so draid also known as distributed raid is just a different type of vdev and it complements existing zfs data protection capabilities and has really aimed at very large storage arrays. Um, what, what happens is that say you have a 14 drive wide RAID Z2 VDEV using 12 terabyte spinning drives. So a rebuild can easily take a week. They say I've got five, I've got five terabyte drives about 10 spindles and I think it takes about 24 hours. I can't I can't remember. It's been so long since I've had a rebuild. So what they try and do here is they they take that they use the, the RAID Z like underpinnings and D-RAID permutes or mixes disk blocks together in a way where accesses are evenly spread across all the drives. And that's the key point is that you utilize all the drives evenly. And they talk about fast spindle replacement being accomplished by using all the members of the pool using pre-allocated virtual spares, which are spread evenly over all the spindles. And there's a lot of big names behind this work. It's uh, Intel, Lawrence Livermore Labs, and HP Enterprise, which have a material interest in storage at data center scales and high reliability. And so they get what they need. And the open ZFS user community are the benefactors. And it sounds good to me, especially um, as we get into bigger and bigger drives
0: and storing more and more data on them. Yeah, so ZFS enables that. And <laughs> with that come the uh, added uh, necessities that uh, d tries to fix.
1: The, when I started reading about it, one of the things they that they mention is this. A scrub is a gold standard for, for pool health. However, a scrub might be a prohibitive amount of work because you have to visit every block allocated in the pool. So if you have 10 drives of 12 terabytes, that's 1.2 petabytes, maybe. It's definitely hundreds and hundreds of terabytes that you have to, have to read in order to make sure everything is okay. So what they do instead is they take a different approach. And so after a failure, the real or distributed spare is written to in sequence. So instead of having to read everything, they just wind up reading the stuff that you have to write to that drive and only to that drive. Uh, And they follow only the parity layout in the space map to rebuild the drive according to parity data only. So when I read that, I didn't follow it. I just said, OK, so they, they recreate the bare minimum that's needed on the drive. So they do that sequentially, and it restores the redundancy level of the pool without actually going in and verifying the checksums of the data. So they, they've re, they, they've taken the scrub and broke it up into two stages, and it winds up being a much smaller amount, amount of work. First, they get all the parity data together and reconstruct the drive. And then what they do is they trigger a healing resilver after a sequential resilver that happens automatically and has a has a number of optimizations to quickly find and reconstruct rights to the failed drive. And once that's done, you're back to full. Uh, it's not it's not degraded. It it's a fully uh active uh, VDEV at that point. Um. I wanna hear a better explanation of how this happens, but they talk about going through and doing, uh, what is it, the Merkle tree? Merkle tree that they go through just to make sure, but they don't have to do the whole tree. They they just do what is necessary to rebuild the drive. When ZFS, this is something that's come about especially because of huge drives. Um, It sounds like it's gonna improve things, They've got a graph here that shows that the reconstruction time is related to where'd the graph go? There was a great graph here that I saw earlier. Oh,
0: I think um, that's the one on the OpenZFS wiki. Yes, that was the one.
1: D D-RAID Karen Silvering. Uh, yes, uh, basically the D sequential resilver time uh, increases according to the number of data disks you have per group, um, but the uh traditional spare drive is pretty much constant on resilvering, and it's not really related so the the times that they are using here was for 90 hard drives with a single distributed spare at 100 pool capacity and to replace a 16 terabyte drive was a constant about 29 hours is what it was but the maximum it took here when you get up to 16 data disks per group it wound up being going just over fifteen hours with D so that's that's oh, ten hours shorter. Mm-hmm. Which, which when you have
0: a when you have degraded uh, arrays, time is yeah. important. Oh yeah, and it doesn't matter whether you have single, double, or triple parity. There, the yep. times don't explode uh, if you have even triple parity. Yep, uh,
1: and I think at one point there. Single and double parity actually take a dip after 15 drives. When they hit 16 drives, they take a slight little dip. I don't think that's statistically significant, but it does show up on the graphs. Uh, I'm interested. It's a different sort of approach. It almost sounds like they have specific drives that are parity and parity only, but I don't think that's the case. It's, uh, it's, I think it must be the way that I'm reading it. But they they refer to spare drives and and parity drives, but I don't think you can point to a drive in a group and say this one's a parity drive.
0: Yeah, that uh, we need to look into. So they provide a couple of Zpool create commands with the new D options, options, um, where you can apparently define the parity level. Yeah. Uh, but I would have to try it out myself with a maybe a, a in a virtual machine with a couple of <laughs> test disks added to it. Um, but it seems like um, it's more efficient this way. Yeah. And instead of a hot spare, you have a
1: spare that's actually within the pool already. And that that's an interesting approach.
0: Mm. So that it does not just jump in when the, when it's needed. It's also part of the pool. We need a more in-depth talk on this. Alan would be uh, happy to probably do this <laughs> next time or when Let, this comes Let's out. hold
1: him to that because I would like to know <laughs> yeah. more about
0: this. I'm sure he's happy to do that. Uh, But the Clara Systems article has a couple of starting points. And they talk about, of course, when are we going to have this?
1: Oh, yes. I saw saw that. I have this answer. It's, where did I put it? OpenZFS 2.1 will support DRAID in early 2021, which is now. Mm. But if you must have it now, uh, the head branch of the OpenZFS build uh, against recently supported operating systems, and you get it. So FreeBSD 12.1 or older, uh, Linux 5.10 or older, Illuminas, NetBSD, all
0: of those will have it if you have, uh, you can get it there. Okay. Yeah. And then give it a try. Maybe not on, you know, your production pools yet but for a new test pool and see what it does especially with the replacing and the resilvering that's a good way of trying it out Mm -hmm. and i know that it took a while to get this done i think the mathematic behind that is a bit complicated Uh, to get right but yeah
1: looking forward to it I really want to. Uh, I want to try this. This sounds very interesting.
0: Yeah, and it, it shows that the the ZFS developers don't just sit on their uh, their laurels that they have <laughs> collected thus far. They also think about you know what's going to happen in storage in the next years and what are the problems that big companies or big RAID array uh, owners have to deal with. Yeah, and
1: uh, I like how they've 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 called it DRAID and it's D RAID one, D RAID two, draid RAID three. Um, it's not that far off from uh, you know RAID Z one, RAID Z two. So mm. it's a similar terminology, but I'd like to know more about how it differs. I, I saw some stuff in the wiki, but I'm sorry, I'm having trouble following it. Yeah, it's
0: um, it's not uh, for uh, you know non-invited or non-initiated developers. I think Alan was. Um, much more, much deeper in it, but uh, that's what we do. We read the news, and people can yeah. look into it further. Um, the the ZFS uh, hand, not the handbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the ZFS web pages uh, also have um, a bit more information that we read. So next up, we have our news roundup. And there we have a tutorial on how to set up a Signal proxy using FreeBSD. And, um, ah, yes, uh, with the event they started off uh, that uh, the private messaging app Signal has been blocked in Iran, Signal has come up with a proxy solution akin to Tor's bridges and have given instructions how to do that. And for the people who prefer FreeBSD over Linux, Mike, <laughs> like they do, they obviously can't run Docker, which is what Signal's instructions focus on fortunately though the docker image is just a fancy wrapper around nginx and the configs can be ported to any operating system and here they'll show how you do that with uh, freebsd and the signal proxy so the prerequisite that you need to fulfill is you need a freebsd server okay that's obvious um that is not running anything on port 80 or 443 if you don't run freebsd you can substitute the commands with one specific to your operating system or linux distro And you also substitute the Acme shell script for the Let's Encrypt clients or use any other CA that you have. But uh, Let's Encrypt is, of course, very easy to use. Uh, They use Acme with zero SSL, but I won't describe the latter here for simplicity's sake. And the steps are you need to install Acme shell script in Nginx first. That's done with package install. Then you need to get your SSL certificate uh, registered and, of course, issued. Then you can, uh, yeah, you re- re- of course, replace your own domain with the host name you want to use. Next, you follow the config for Nginx and user local ETC Nginx. Conf, and there you add a section for the Nginx stream module, or at least that's where the section is where you have to put it. Then there's a stream section where you map the SSL pre-read server name in there, and it provide you the information for the signal. Um Host names. It, then you it, yeah. it
1: so reminds me of just straightforward stuff that i do in nginx it, it it's so easy hmm. if you know what it's doing i i have trouble following this but each thing in the top section refers to something down down below and it's very straight it's a very straightforward example i think i really like yeah
0: that. yeah we don't need to read the whole config file there but um you define those sections Uh, for a couple of signal um, servers. And there, after that, you, um, of course, add uh, your nginx enable to sys. um, So rc.conf using sysrc, then start the nginx service. And then you should already have a fully functioning signal proxy. So it's basically all in the nginx.conf. Yeah,
1: this is pretty impressive. People that know a lot more about nginx have done this, because I can't follow most of this. Oh, you see the one thing? Access log off, error log dev null. Mm-hmm. That's nice.
0: Yeah. Because... They're not logging anything <laughs> by design. No one wants to listen into the conversations they go through mm-hmm. uh, on that proxy. Yeah, this is yeah, fairly straightforward for security-minded and privacy-minded folks.
1: And I like that it uses three of my favorite tools, FreeBSD, Nginx, and uh, it recommends the acme.sh uh, client yeah. for Let's Encrypt.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm always amazed what people can, you know, put together that is typically not in the, uh, you know, first you thought, oh, these are just single components, but if you put them together in a mm-hmm. different way, you have a whole new service or a new whole new, uh, you know, functionality. Yep.
1: And th- this should work on any OS that you can get an Acme compatible Let's Encrypt client and an Nginx. It'll work anywhere, I think.
0: Yeah, this is not too FreeBSD specific. And you could put this in a jail to, for extra security there. And yeah, that's then you have a signal proxy. Yep. The next uh, article that we have here is how you can annotate your PDF files on OpenBSD. Now, this reminds me of something that I was trying to figure
1: out earlier today. I actually had a tool that let me annotate um, web pages and this is very similar. I couldn't find my tool. I couldn't find my login details because I couldn't remember the tool. And once I found, saw the words annotate, ah, that's what I got to search for in my password manager. There it is. But anyway, that's that's not that's not relevant to this. So sometimes you want to annotate PDF files. And I can think of one reason. Uh, you're trying to highlight the important bits in a document you're reading, or you're going to provide feedback to someone later, and so you just highlight the bits you're concerned about. So in in this case, someone was leaving macOS, and they wanted to uh, mimic some of the features that they use, specifically uh, annotating or signing PDF files is a really simple task using Preview. I've not actually used Preview to annotate PDFs. I'm going to have to look into that. I couldn't do it on OpenZFS using Zethra. I'm not familiar with that,
0: Zetra, and, Zetra, yeah,
1: <laughs> or XPDF, but there is a software in the ports tree that can achieve this, XJournal. Now, XJournal is described as an application for note-taking, sketching, or keeping a journal using a stylus. And now that my touchscreen is calibrated, highlighting can even be done with your fingers. Uh, installing the software is easy. It's just package add. Uh, then you open the PDF document and start annotating it. The highlighter can spotlight text zones, or the text tool allows adding text with your own preferred font settings. And basically, you can just draw on the PDF as you like or sign it. And once you're done, you save your work into an XOJ file, and or it can be... Re- exported to a read-only PDF. And I like that. Uh, take the original document, do a file save as, and you've got everything in there.
0: Oh, yeah. So I used um, Mac OS's preview tool for um, you know, assigning document. Hmm. And that's more accepted now than before the pandemic, it turns out. Uh, another tool that you might be interested in, Dan, is OCR My PDF. So sometimes you have a PDF that's just an image Mm -hmm. that you cannot, you know, copy text from. And OCR, my PDF, takes that, runs it through some, you know, OCR engine uh, with a bit of, I think they had some, you know, text recognition in there and some AI of sorts. Um, But then it renders you a new document that you can then select text in. Hmm. And that's uh, helpful. I did it for a couple of, you know, things I scanned years ago. Uh, some, some builds that I had and then I could just copy stuff out of there because it's not an image anymore. It's mm-hmm. now just real text. Huh. And with this one, you can now annotate those as yeah. well.
1: I just have discovered this in um, preview. So I don't often need it, but now when I do I see it's there. This is
0: great. Yeah, this is a little toolbox and it allows you to write your, uh, use the touchpad to write your signature. It's not the most prettiest signature, but it works.
1: it's fine. And There's nothing wrong with it at all.
0: And I think the the thing that we have here is also doing this is uh, this is cool. and again, this is not openBSD specific. This should uh, the software should also be available on other unixes. So it's good to know about this. Let's check fresh parts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excellent. That's what I do. I do a lot of annotating for um, when students send me, uh, you know, lab reports or um, when I'm their co-thesis supervisor in bachelors or undergraduates, and uh, then they send me extracts from there. <laughs> things that they already have written and want to uh, have comments on that. So I'd be happy to <laughs> smear in their documents. Here, here's
1: something funny. I called it external. journal I know that I called oh. it external journal because I remember... And when I went to search for it on Fresh Ports, I typed X journal and found nothing. I said, Oh. And then I looked at the show notes again and then looked back and saw, oh, I spelled it wrong. It is on uh, FreshPorts. And huh. there's
0: Yeah, there's no there's two different there's
1: no... applications. E- 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 Exor- e- I can't pronounce Zornal, that. Zornal app <laughs> and Zornal. Two different things. Both in gra- huh. both in graphics. Uh, one is a handwriting note-taking application with PDF annotation support, and the other one is it's a tool that we just talked about.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's fascinating what you um, can d- discover. It's it all. It's probably been there for a while, but now with that we have a need for that, we can find it easy on the Freshports. Yep. I never knew I needed just, it. Yeah. Especially when, uh, like, this person who was switching... Um you kind of get used to some of the systems uh or the operating system specifics like from Mac OS and you don't want to miss that functionality, which keeps people from uh, making the jump in the first place. And when there's a replacement, then they can use that.
1: Yeah, like one of the tools I use often on on Mac is
0: uh sna- uh screenshots. Oh yes. Yeah. And from either a single application or just the the window that you can draw. Yeah. You can also do uh
1: yeah. A section of the window? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. enough about OS (laughs) X. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. The next article that we have is from Fabricator, Things You Should Do Now. So that sounds important. That's why we have it here. So so Fabricator is um, used, for example, in FreeBSD with the code reviews that we're doing. Fabricator can do a lot more, but that's what we're uh, using. And here they describe other things that you can do with Fabricator and they recommend a couple of those. So this describes uh, things you should do now when building software because the cost to do them increases over time and eventually becomes prohibitive or impossible. For example, in the overview, if you're building a hot new web startup, there are a lot of decisions to make about what to focus on. Most things you'll build will take about the same amount of time to build regardless or what order you build them in, but there are a few technical things which become vastly more expensive to fix later. If you don't, these, uh, don't do these things early in development, they'll become very hard or impossible to do later. This is basically a list of things that would have saved Facebook huge amounts of time and effort down the road if someone had spent a tiny amount of time on them earlier in the development process. Okay, Uh, so what they have here is the first item is start IDs at a gigantic number. So if you're using integer IDs to identify data or objects, don't start your IDs at one. Start them at a huge number, like 2 to the power of 33, so that no object ID will ever appear in any other role in your application, like a count, a natural index, a byte size, a timestamp, or others. This takes about five seconds if you do it before... Or well, you launch and uh, or launch (laughs) rules out a huge class of nasty bugs for all time. It becomes increasingly, uh, incredibly difficult as soon as you have production data, and they provide a short example. So they load uh, the user's friends, return a map of friends to ID, and if that's true. Get the first eight friends, ah, yes, and, this re- and then render those friends. Because array underscore slice in PHP discards array indices and renumbers them, this doesn't render the user's first eight friends, but the users with IDs 0 through 7, um, yeah, like Mark Zuckerberg, ID 4, and Dustin Moskowitz, ID 6. If you have IDs in this range, sooner or later, someone that isn't an ID will get treated like an ID, and the operation will be valid and cause unexpected behavior. This is completely avoidable if you start your IDs at a gigantic number. This is probably also true for, um, you know, primary indexes, Mm -hmm. right, primary keys. Mm -hmm. Then they talk about uh, only storing valid UTF-8. Yeah, because otherwise there will be nasty bugs with different uh, characters in there. Another thing they list is never design a blacklist-based security system, and why that is. Uh, When you have an alternative... Don't design security systems which are default permit, blacklist-based, or otherwise attempt to enumerate badness. So apparently, when Facebook launched Platform, it launched with a blacklist-based CSS filter, which basically tried to enumerate all the bad parts of CSS and filter them out. This was a poor design choice and led to basically infinite security holes for all time. And lastly, fail very loudly when SQL syntax errors occur in production. Uh, So this, this doesn't apply if you aren't using SQL, but if you are, Detect when a query fails because of a syntax error. Like in MySQL, it is error 1064. Uh, If the error or if the failure happened in production, fail in the loudest way possible. They implemented this in 2008 at Facebook and had it just email them and a few other people directly. The system was eventually refined. Well, so this basically creates a high signal stream that tells you where you have SQL injection holes in your application. It will have some false positives and could theoretically have false negatives. But at Facebook, it was pretty high signal considering how important the signal is. Cool. Yeah, that's also interesting to
1: to have. I think what they're getting at here is that if someone is trying SQL injection on your web page and that causes an error in the database server, that should send off huge alarm bells. Because if you can produce a a syntax error from the web page, there's a trouble in your code. There's the potential yeah. for
0: SQL injection. Mm, it gets passed to the database backend and then all hell breaks loose. Uh,
1: I, I know I can't store valid UTF-8. I can't do it for fresh ports because I'm given data from another party and I can't, I don't want to modify it. Um, mm. So I can't do that. And I know on Bacula, it's always SQL ASCII stored in the files because if you have a file name on disk, and you change it to utf-8 when you go to restore it you've got a different file not the file that you backed up so you can't yeah. do it in a backup system you can't insist upon valid utf-8 for file names
0: and yeah recently i had this in Nextcloud where i was thinking between different systems so i was thinking from the mac to a non UTF-8 system, and so it found that the file name was there, but with a different, you know, glyph or thing that it couldn't represent. So it saved the uh, file again with a replacement glyph. But I still had the original file uh, on this system, so that I could, you know, either change the file name or something else. The files were completely correct, uh, but just the file names had different characters in there.
1: And the strat start ID is a big number. Um, I think that sounds okay i don't i don't know i don't know i know that I id i i know that big id you want to use big ints then not just an int but a a a big int uh so that you avoid id rollover eventually but i mean Mm -hmm. what are the chances of you having two to the 33 ids rollover you start there how big is that it's yeah oh it's eight billion eight and a half billion so mm-hmm. it's, it's not that far out because usually we go usually we have 64 bit integers now or id fields so that's a lot of data you're you're yeah. not going to wrap around quickly
0: on that yeah depends on how much data you have or how how quickly it's coming yeah. into the database well yeah the the recommendations there are good and uh if people are designing a new system then they should uh heat that Okay, then we have adjust, which is a command runner, and it's more Unixy than make because it does even less, according to the uh, GitHub page.
1: I started looking at this. You know what first came to mind was aliases. The, oh yes, mm-hmm. that, that's what this reminded me: aliases and shell scripts. Yeah. So it's it's a command runner. It's not a it, it's sort. Of, I think of it as a scripting language but they call it a command runner and it's not a build system. Some of the nice features that they mention is it can be invoked from any directories. That means it's got to be a binary on the path. Arguments can be passed in from the command line. They have static error checking that catches syntax errors and typos. Uh, they have error messages with source context. They, you can list recipes from the command line. Recipes can be written in any language. It's portable in that it works on Linux, Mac OS, and Windows. Um, and they, they point out that it doesn't replace Make or any other build system, but it does replace reverse searching through your command history and telling colleagues the weird flags they need to pass to do the thing. And it avoids you forgetting how to run old projects. And it, 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 it seems, like as I said, it reminds me of aliases and of shell, shell scripts. Um, but it seems to be uh, a more elegant way of achieving the same thing.
0: Yeah, for for make files or similar files to build software, that's a huge page they have here with instructions and examples. It
1: is, and what I need to read here to fully appreciate it is, here's a common thing that a lot of people do. Here's how you would do it over here. Here's how you do it with Jest.
0: Oh, yeah, so people can compare.
1: I, I understood the qu- quick starting like that, but I need hmm? slightly different things. I need some practical examples.
0: Yeah, they, they're probably in there somewhere. And they support a lot of Unixes and build systems. So yeah, check it out. Might be useful for your build needs in the future or for a current project. And uh, they probably probably uh, like to hear from you if you're it's using It's definitely
1: it. a popular project. There's, uh over 2,400 stars and over
0: 85 forks. Mm, yeah. So uh, it's probably been used uh, in many other projects already. i bet it has. All right. Before we go into our feedback and questions, we should mention the sponsor that we have for this week. And that is Tarsnap, of course, which is your one-stop solution for all things backup. And it's a very secure way of backing up your data. So first, the data is locally uh, deduplicated and uh, some blocks removed that are duplicates. So sometimes you have a file that's uh, spread over a disk in multiple locations, and you only have to store this once. So that's what they do in this uh, very basic uh, step in a binary way. And then they encrypt it locally with a key. And then the encrypted disk or the encrypted data leaves your disks and is being stored in the AWS cloud. And there it sits until you need it again. And no one else can grab it from there and can make sense of it because it's just gibberish for them. You are the only person holding the the backup keys. And then you can decrypt it again and get your files back that you, at that point, need very quickly or hopefully uh, never. But uh, everything is managed through a comprehensive command line that's very similar to TAR, the uh, tape archiver. And the pricing is very cheap. $10 $10 gets you, depending on your database or data size, um, very far. At least it does for me. Uh, with all the deduplication going on, it can save me a lot of data and I don't have to pay too much to use the service. Uh, you can sign up on the webpage, page, uh, create yourself an account, charge that account with a credit card or via PayPal. And if you're super paranoid and don't trust them, you can get the source code and look at it and really see what's going on behind it. And I'm fairly sure Dan is also uh, using it not just on a single system, but on multiple systems, this right? This is true. I use it to back up my source code repository.
1: Uh, it backs up my Bacula configuration. I think it backs up my Bacula database, which is about 200 gig. Um, it runs on a number of systems, both local and remote.
0: Yeah, and it's well-documented. You can find all of that on the TarSnap webpage. page. Uh, you could also look at how it's designed and what kind of components it contains. There's also a, if you're not sure how much it would cost you for a given amount of data, you can simulate that, like with a dry run, before you, um, you know, try it out for real. And then it will tell you, oh, this roughly costs or would cost you this amount. So that's a good way of, you know, determining how much it would cost. But you will find that uh, TarSnap is cheap enough and provides you the right amount of you know, backup uh, practice that you can need. You can set up a simple uh, cron job, and it does it in the background. You don't even think about it after a couple of days, and it's just running. But when you need it, you have it. And as long as you save the key then in a secure location, then you can always get your data back. All right, now it's time for the feedback and questions, which we couldn't get to last week because we were kind of short on feedback, but we got some new ones. Uh, The sooner you send us feedback, the sooner it will appear on the show. It's so easy. And this should go to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Anything you always wanted to know, feedback, comments, questions, that's the part of this episode. The first one is Mark, and Mark seems to have A bit of a confusion about uh, snapshots. So let me read that here. Uh, Mark writes, I have a question about deleting old snapshots. How does that work? Snapshots stack on top of each other, right? Uh, Meaning the last will only hold changes from the previous snapshot. How can then you, how then can you delete an old one? Wouldn't that be removing data that the new snapshots are reliant upon? Uh, No. Uh,
1: The the idea that snapshots only whole data since the last snapshot is not true. A snapshot is an image that represents the file system as it existed at that time. So uh, you can go in uh, and create a new file system and create snapshot A, snapshot B, snapshot C, snapshot D, and you can delete A, B, C and still have D. They, they are not related. Um, if you want to roll back to snapshot C, you will have to delete snapshot D in, in that, in that regard, they are related, but it's, if you want to roll back to an older snapshot, you have to delete this new, the newer snapshots, or you could just do a ZFS copy of the old snapshot and create a new file system based on that older snapshot. But no, um, to answer your specific question, uh, you can delete an old one without affecting the newer snapshots. And that is absolutely the case. I tested it this afternoon. And I'll have a little um, gist that shows how to do this. And we'll get it added to the, snap,
0: uh, to the show notes. Oh, good, yep. It's very uh, simple to test. You could basically create uh, snapshots A, B, and C. And in each one, you change something. And uh, then you, if you delete the middle one, then you can see that data from A or C are still there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I add that to the show notes here, And what Dan wrote.
1: The thing to keep in mind is it is a snapshot. It's like a photograph of the file system as of that point in time. So uh, and that it is a read-only snapshot. So if you were to go and look at snapshot A, which you can do on disk, you use CD to the mount point of the file system, cd.zfs slash snapshot, and then do an ls. You get a list of the snapshots. You can cd into the snapshot names, see what all the files look like. Very useful. I use that uh, feature for backups. Take a snapshot of the file system, then back up the snapshot. I don't back up the live live file system very often.
0: Yeah. It's for those situations of, oh, I shouldn't have deleted that file. And since there is no, you know, trash can on the BSDs or on the Unixes, unless you're on a desktop that implements that, you can use this to just save yourself without having to roll back the whole file system and just pull this file from that uh, hidden directory. You can even make that visible if you set the snapdir uh, to visible, I think. Yeah. And then well, it will, but it will confuse some some people. What's this hidden zfs directory doing there? It's <laughs> hidden. Yeah. Don't go in so, there. but yeah um, that's the way you use it so ZFS keeps track of all your snapshots and the files in there and so uh, it's smart enough to give you the files that you had uh, at that point in time okay hopefully that answers it for you thank you for writing in Uh, next one is Pete with a question let's see if I grab the right one Yeah, this is the one. So Pete writes, not sure if this is the right place for this. So his question is, I'm using Churcher's Beehive on FreeBSD 12.2, patch level 3 release, uh, running on an X570 board with Ryzen R9 CPU with 64 gigs of RAM. I want to have my Windows virtual machine access both a pass-through device and four physical hard drives. I can get it to do one or the other, but not both at once. Below is my config for the VM. Uh, as is my physical hard drive, do not show up. Uh, if I comment out pass through uh, 600, my drives show in Explorer. Ah, okay. So this is uh, so. If the people don't know about this, Churcher is, is a distribution of beehives of sort. They added a couple of you know helpers around it to make it easier to use.
1: I don't know the answer to this, but I'm sure that someone does. I don't have enough experience of running Beehive apart from running FreeBSD, in Xhive on my Mac. So that's mm. where I generally use Beehive, is on the Mac uh, port
0: of it. And you don't run Windows in Beehive? Uh, no, I run FreeBSD in Beehive. I always wanted to try it out, but uh, then I had not the uh, immediate use of the Windows there, mm-hmm. so I didn't even bother to, to try it. I put a I put a copy of fresh
1: ports in my laptop so that I could work on stuff when I didn't have network... Uh,
0: connectivity so if people know the answer to this there's um the in the show notes there's the configuration provided so you can um see what's going on or what uh, he's trying to do um and maybe um you know the answer and send it to us then we'll add this and refer back to that so that everyone gets their solution to this maybe alan would know but um he's not around he he will come back No worries. Um, Sometimes we don't know the answer, but uh, there's a big community out there that's just waiting for these kind of things (laughs) to educate us on. And uh, there's Rick uh, with a ZFS idea. Okay, so what's that about? Rick writes, we have multiple operating systems that can boot from ZFS. At what point, maybe soon, can we use ZFS pools instead of disk partitions to boot multiple operating systems from the same ZFS VDEF? Seems like some bootloader magic, similar to how boot environments work today, would do it. I think you could. I don't know enough about the boot process
1: to answer this, though. Um, I know I know that you could easily have the same ZFS file system be accessed by multiple operating systems. So if you can get the system booted into your favorite OS, they can all use the same ZFS data pool. If it's compatible with their version, yeah, um, that that's one of the interoperability features of ZFS. But as as to how to get the different boot fs parameter for each boot thing that you want to do, I I think there's only one boot fs parameter per zpool, so you'd have to boot. From different Z pools, I think. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, yeah, the, yeah. on the Z pool, there's something called bootFS, FS, which tells you where the root FS is, and you mm. can't change that on a per Z pool basis, I think. So, the question is, can we use Z ZFS pools instead of disk partitions? Um, I think you could, but I don't know the details of how to go about that. Mm. Again, let's wait for Alan.
0: Yeah. So there's, I mean, it's not just booting, it's is the disk encrypted? Or as Dan said, has it the right pool version that it's expecting from the, the that the loader is uh, uh, expecting? Or uh, for example, when we, did, uh, we didn't we did have the encryption yet, ZFS now has the built-in one, we used Galley, and the loader n- need to know about Galley and how to decrypt that. So that also is part of the loader. And that, if that's on a different system, or it's a pool from a different system, it, doesn't know about this, then, of course, it cannot continue booting there. But from if you have just basic ZFS and both systems have the same versions and the loaders know about how ZFS is implemented and how to start it, then I think this is possible. Um, and we, we, we mentioned this a couple of times on the show. ZFS is going to become the file system or storage system uh, that is compatible now with many more operating systems than any other file system before. Uh, if the windows port happens to become stable enough that people can uh, use it then this is the file system that can use pretty much any kind of operating system even the ones that are on little endian and big endian systems so it's very very likely that we have this one very compatible file system in the future that is just zfs and we can booted from multiple systems. But yeah, um, I don't know uh, anything more about that. Alan has been dabbling more in the bootloader in the past um, and would be able to comment on this further. But I'm fairly sure that it's more likely to have it with ZFS than with any other uh, file system out there. Because you always need to have porting efforts, and the bootloaders on various operating systems work a little bit different, Um, especially since they're so small they need to fit in in the boot record um so it's possible but i don't know any specific answers to that but uh yeah thank you for writing in uh we will be happy to follow up if there's people writing to those and referring that so we can uh answer that in a future episode so uh that pretty much wraps up this episode i hope it was interesting to you we had a bunch of interesting topics in there and stay tuned for our next episode next week thank you dan for filling in once again Thank you. My pleasure. Goodbye, everyone.